immortal, invisible, God only wise. You know, you, you have to ask God about his wisdom in that this is the 3,267th time that I am preaching at Westerly Road slash Stonehill Church. I mean, if you took the notes for all those sermons and piled them up, it would go from this pulpit all the way to, well, maybe the front door. But, but the point is this. I have loved preaching at this church. And so it is with a great deal of nostalgia that I come to the final two sermons that I bring here as senior pastor. We're going to finish up the series that we began uh, a while back in Genesis, taking a look at six key scenes from the life of Jacob. But the two sermons that I'm going to preach, today's and next week, these two can stand alone. Because in them, we're going to take a look at two critical principles for moving ahead as the people of God in times of strain and trial. A better way to put it is that in these two sermons, we will learn two necessary convictions for resilient, God-fearing, Christ-honoring leadership. Maybe the best way to put it and the most poignant for the people of Stonehill Church is that we're going to consider two convictions that I have, that I want to pass on to my beloved flock at Stonehill for them to take forward as a church after I step down as senior pastor. Those of you who are listening not from Stonehill Church, I, I believe you will be greatly strengthened in your faith as well. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 45. I'm going to read Genesis 45, verse 25, on into chapter 46, down through verse 7. This is a golden moment in the life of Jacob. Let me remind you of the previous scenes that we've looked at so you can can, uh, borrow an uh, an understanding of, of the momentum here as we come to these texts. Genesis 25, Jacob's birth, born as a heel grabber at birth, already wanting to be number one, grasping and pulling. Genesis 28, Jacob's flight. He's now a middle-aged man and he's still a heel grabber. He's, he still wants to be number one. He's cheated his older brother Esau and he is now fleeing the promised land. And as he leaves, he stops overnight at a place that he then calls Bethel. And he has a dream of a ladder connecting himself up to heaven. It's his first real encounter with God. And interestingly enough, for the first time in the Jacob story, an emotion is assigned to Jacob. Fear. Fear of God. Genesis 32 Jacob's return. It's now 20 years later. And Jacob's coming back to Canaan and preparing to meet his still alienated brother Esau, whom he hasn't seen for those 20 years. He wrestles with God the night before he meets Esau. And he he almost wins, but God, with just a touch, beats him. And he's defeated 
He, as a result, carries with him for the rest of his days a limp, but he also gets from God a new name, Israel. Chapter 35, Jacob's revival. Ten years after that, Jacob has yet to do what he told God that he was going to do some 30 years before, and that was return to Bethel and to set up an altar. And God tells him in chapter 35, it's time to do what you said you were going to do. Stop delaying. And Jacob repents, and there's a revival and a renewal. His family joins him. It's a wonderful moment in the flow of God's grace into the line of humanity. And now here we are, Genesis 45. Over 20 years after that, Jacob's favorite son... He made the the huge parental mistake of having an obvious favorite. Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, presumed dead for so many years, has during that time not only been alive, but has become the CEO of Egypt. Jacob doesn't know this yet, but, but... His 11 sons, Joseph's brothers, do, and they've come back from Egypt with the incredible news. Hear now the reading of God's word. So they, the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, and what he had said to them, and when Jacob saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, a nice little death, resurrection touch in the text. And Israel, Jacob said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and I will see him before I die. And so Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And your son Joseph's hand shall close your eyes in death. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. 
This is the reading of God's Word. This event is a keystone in Jacob's life. I call it a keystone because when an arch is constructed, pieces are piled up from the sides. And they're piled up until finally the keystone is added at the top and it holds together everything. It brings it all into one unit. And everything in Jacob's crazy life is being brought together in this scene. I can't go through all of it. Let me just give you a couple examples. Notice, for instance, that Jacob himself, when he realizes that his sons are not tricking him, and let me mention that Jacob, the liar and manipulator, would assume that others lie and manipulate. When he realizes that he's not being tricked, he himself says, verse 28, it's enough. It now all makes sense. I get it. Joseph is alive beyond my expectation. All my hopes, all my dreams, all my life, it comes together now. I could die right now and be a completed man. Another keystone event here has to do with Jacob's sin. The deceiver has been deceived. His sons used some clothing to create in Jacob a false impression that Joseph was dead. But decades before, Jacob himself had used a piece of clothing to create in his father Isaac the impression that the favorite son was not at home. Keystone event. Jacob can finally understand now why none of his sons has ever really emerged as a quality, godly leader. And that's because Joseph has emerged as a quality, godly leader down in Egypt. Keystone event. Jacob shows remarkable, obedient faith in this scene. He is reluctant. Did you catch it? He's reluctant to leave the promised land, even though he could go and see his beloved son, Joseph. He doesn't want to go down to Egypt. And why? Well, it's almost as if he said to himself, why would I want to leave Canaan, the land that God promised me and my offspring? Why would I leave my inheritance? As much as I want to see Joseph, I do not want to displease God. And Jacob needs the intervention of God to release him down into Egypt. And that's what happens in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 46. I mean, at the human level, so much is happening here with regards to the Jacob story. The human side of this cannot be overemphasized. But I have told you time and again in this series that these scenes from Jacob's story are not simply about Jacob. They are as much about the God of Jacob. And in verse 2 of chapter 46, we have emerged for us one of the most important realities about the God of Jacob, the God of grace. The author here in verse 2 sets you up to see it 
to see it, see something in, in a double way, so to speak, to see God in a double way. Look at the verse. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, now let me just stop right there. Let, let me recast that to kind of get the, 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 the interrupted flow of the Hebrew. God said to Israel in visions of the night. Yes, God said, and you're expecting God to say Israel, right? Because that's how the person was introduced in the first half of the verse. God said to Israel in visions of night. Yes, God said, Jacob, Jacob. You're expecting God to say Israel. I mean, that's the name that's presented. That's Jacob's other name. But no, God says Jacob. Simply put, what is emerging here, what becomes a a prominent theme in the rest of Scripture is that God is simultaneously the God of Jacob and the God of Israel. God is the God of Israel, of this man in his new calling, in his new identity, in all the strengths that God gave to him, that, that he put over to God when he was finally captured by God. That, that's, what, that's what Israel, Jacob, learned that night that he wrestled with God and he almost won. God told him, you're Israel now. You, you've taken me seriously. You've wrestled with me. And I take you seriously now too. You will now have a new name, a new identity, a new calling. God. God is the God of all his people in their strengths, in their new identity. For us, our new identity in Christ. Hold on to that thought. God is also here, though. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of this man in this man's brokenness, in this man's sin, in this man's many deceptions. He's the God of this, this deceiver, which is what the word Jacob means. A kind of heel grabber, deceiver, manipulator. I'm going to get my way. Jacob wanted to be number one. He wanted to be first. He wanted things his own way. And that was not some ancient dysfunction. I mean, in the New Testament, there's a guy like that. It's in what I've heard called a New Testament postcard, a really, really short letter in the New Testament. 3 John. 3 John 9 reads this way. Diotrephes likes to put himself first. This guy Diotrephes in a small little church there, he wanted to call the shots as to who should be in and who should be out. He wanted to spread rumors and gossip about the leaders. He wanted things his way. He was a Jacob, a heel grabber. I want to be first. We're all in our own ways, Jacobs. And yet God is still the God of Jacob. That's not to say, that's not to say that 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 God condones our sin and our pride, our wanting to be first. But, but in the midst of that weakness and sin, God still remains ours. And he will, if we let him, he will show us his strength despite our weaknesses. Because of his grace, 
God is the God of his people in their strengths and in their weaknesses. God is the God of Israel. God is the God of Jacob. Now let me make that very personal and speak at this time to uh, my beloved brothers and sisters of Stonehill Church. During this time of transition, of leadership transition, and the broader set of trials around us, God is still the God of you, Stonehill Church, in all of your strengths and in all of your weaknesses. Now, not surprisingly, the New Testament takes that very idea that I just shared, this Genesis principle, which is presented here in seed form and grows it into a rich set of convictions. So here's what I want to do. As the outgoing pastor here, I want to offer some parting counsel to my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ at Stonehill Church. I want, to, I want to exhort you to live out your calling as a congregation that believes in the God of Israel and the God of Jacob. As a congregation that believes in a God of, 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 of generous strength to his people and a God who, who is with us even in our weakness. I want to give to you two very simple exhortations as you move ahead into the next season of life together without me as senior pastor. And my first exhortation is this. Because God is the God of Israel, don't hold back your strength. Just like Jacob in verse 2 here, say to the God of Israel during this time of transition, here am I. See my hand, it's up. I'll do what you want done. Don't hold back. In the New Testament, over in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, we read this. Gifts from the Spirit are given to each of us so we can help each other. Chapter 12, verse 7. By His Spirit, God has given to each and every believer at Stonehill Church a set of gifts and abilities, spiritual and otherwise. And the body of Christ needs, needs that set at play. The body of Christ needs you and the gifts that God has given to you. If you have the gift of encouragement, then speak. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of mercy, then serve. If you have, to give, if you have the gift of giving, then be generous. If you have the gift of faith, then pray. You know, way back in my early years as pastor, I saw the title of a, of a little book of sermons. This is in the 1980s. So uh, the title read this way, No Little People. Probably today it would be No Insignificant People. And it's always stuck with me, that, that title, that concept, that there are no insignificant people 
in Christ's church, in the Corinthian church, there were no insignificant people, despite the fact that that church was filled with people with all kinds of messes, messed up pasts, marked by addictions and sexual promiscuity and exploitation and conflict. The church was filled with slaves who were caught in an in a oppression mindset and taught to think of themselves as just worthless, as nothing. And it was also filled with Roman citizens and slave owners who had no idea of their moral compromise. But still, in the midst of that, Paul says, there are no insignificant people in the body of Christ. There are no insignificant people here at Stonehill Church. This church needs needs each and every one of you. And the persistent lie right now might be something like, well, you know, during this transition, in light of all these trials around us, you know, COVID, the economy, politics, injustice, in light of all this, I'm just going to hold back and see what happens. But now, now is the time to be like Israel in this text. Here I am. Here I am, Lord. This is the principle of strength. This is the principle of using what God has given to you in a way that trusts and honors the God of Israel. My second exhortation. Because God is the God of Jacob, don't waste your weakness. Again, quoting from, New, from the New Testament, from the book of Corinthians, this time 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read this. The Lord said to me, in weakness, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Don't give up on my grace and power, God sang to Paul. Circumstances, including your own weakness, may tempt you to do otherwise. But don't give up. Trust in me no matter how great your weakness, no matter how difficult the challenge. Jesus loves to show himself in situations of weakness and difficulty, brokenness and trial. So don't waste your weakness. It's an opportunity to see Jesus' power. And that's because Jesus is the God of Jacob. You know, Karen and I were talking a few days ago about Jacob and Israel, weakness and strength, especially in relation to all of us as we enter a new season. You know, as I step down, as, as Karen and I then take a year or so away from Stonehill, for your part, as you move ahead with new leadership and, and a, 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 a real transition in the middle of some very, very oppressive trials around us, COVID, the economy, politics, justice, as I've already mentioned, this is a time of change and of seeming weakness. And as I talked with Karen, we developed a, a set of three Pairs of appeals that play off of weakness and strength. First pair, Stonehill. 
you will waste this transition and trial if you see them as a mistake, as things that should never have happened. But you will discover Christ's power in this transition and trial if you see them as exactly measured out for you to play your constructive part. Together, Stonehill, you can discover the truth of perhaps the most quoted verse in the New Testament. We can handle all things through Christ who gives us strength. Second pair of appeals. Stonehill, you will waste this transition and trial if you use them as a means to pull back from Christ. But you will discover Christ's power in this transition and trial if you press forward in obedient faith, if you go hard after God, if you obey, if you in effect say to him, here am I. Third pair of appeals. Stonehill, you will waste this transition and trial if you pull yourself away from the community of faith of which you have been a part. But you will discover Christ's power in this transition and trial if you move closer and learn better to listen to, love, and lean on one another. Jesus Christ is the God of our Jacobs and our Israels. And that is because he himself became both Jacob and Israel the broken, crucified one, and the living, all-powerful king. And the best response to say to such a savior is like, Genesis, like Jacob in Genesis 46.2, here am I. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, help your people here at Stonehill Karen and me and our beloved congregation, help all of us to not hold back on our strengths and to not waste uh, this time of, of weakness. Do so to show yourself to be strong and full of mercy, the God of Israel and the God of Jacob. Amen. Amazing love, how can it be that this God should die for me? Let's sing together.